Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Today, we're talking customer loyalty programs. Boards and company leadership teams seem to love them. Professor Byron Sharp and the Ehrenberg Bass Institute thinks they're overcooked and underdeliver. But with us today is a one-time lawyer involved in a one-time takeover of Qantas with the airline's former CEO, Jeff Dixon, which didn't quite work, but he's since moved to Woolworths to develop its customer loyalty program. Then he moved to Meyer to do the same before ending up at the Woolworths-owned data and analytics firm, Quantium. Bernard Wilson has just joined as CEO of Cash Rewards, a company eyeing off an IPO, and he thinks while plenty of these loyalty programs miss the mark, there's enormous upside for brands, retailers and marketers as major changes are underway in the customer path to purchase. Interestingly enough, he's also a fan of brand building, not just performance marketing, although that too is all changing up through COVID. So welcome, Bernard. Let's start with the curly stuff first, the influential Ehrenberg Bass Institute's view of loyalty programs. It's considerable work, says they're more of a mirage really than magic for business results, and they don't necessarily drive authentic customer loyalty. You've got a view on this. Um, Give us your take. Straight into it, Paul, not even giving me a chance to warm up. Yes. Thank you and lovely to be here and um, lovely to be talking to uh, to your audience. So I think fundamentally the question is is whether in respect of loyalty programs that the juice is worth the squeeze, squeeze, right? And to be honest, I think loyalty programs themselves are, are kind of in need of a rebrand because they're not just about loyalty these days, if they ever were. I think they've got a much broader set of goals. I also think it's confusing that we keep calling them loyalty programs. On, on one hand, a loyalty program like Woolworths Rewards or Maya One, it exists to achieve a number of customer and business outcomes. It's, it's not just about driving loyalty or customer lifetime value. Think about it this way, and, and you know, I, I think in terms of Ehrenberg Bass, it's a, it, it's, it's a point that, that probably lines up with their thinking. In retail, a customer can turn left to you or right to a competitor. And, and used cleverly, a loyalty program can help you to get a customer to turn, to turn left more often than not. So it doesn't matter whether the customer is sort of loyal in the purest sense or not. What matters is that they're turning left. Um, on the other hand, I think it's important to understand that you, I don't think you need to have points or even a card to have a loyalty program. Like, what constitutes a loyalty program, it's not black and white. Anything ultimately that is established to engender loyalty or drive retention or or lifetime value or even brand, it, it can be considered a loyalty program. Dan Murphy's is probably the best example of this. I think it's touted as Australia's sixth largest loyalty program, but it's never had points and it it doesn't really operate within any of the standard tenets of the loyalty program. All it does is curate a one-to-one or direct connection with customers through direct marketing platforms, which are obviously evolving in their ability to support businesses and offer those customers a more personalised experience based on their shopping behaviour. And and, and and in a way, that's very different to, to sort of the loyalty programs, I think, that Ehrenberg Bass has, has sort of previously considered. 
in terms of Berenberg Bass specifically, and I'd love for us to continue this conversation maybe with them at some point, but I think they focus primarily on salience and penetration. And I'd suspect that Ehrenberg, Bass and myself are aligned that in, in the digital age, salience requires your brand to be in more places than ever before. Like it doesn't matter how salient your brand is if it's not where your customer is versus where they, I guess, were historically or where you want them to be. And similarly, I guess, in terms of penetration in the digital age, it's not just about being on the shelf at the point of purchase. Like the Mars bar can't just be at the counter at the service station. So as shopping formats change and the buying cycle changes, I believe nailing salience and penetration, it, it requires brands to connect with customers both digitally and physically and and both above the line and, and below the line to achieve the kind of cut through required. So in many ways, whilst loyalty is an outcome, and, and I say that quite passionately, it's, it's not an input, and a loyalty program is not necessarily required to achieve it. I think that sometimes a loyalty program can be a suitable means to an end, I guess, in facilitating salience and penetration via more of a direct customer connection. So, Bernard, just quickly, though, why is there this fascination with points and cards and some of those we might call loyalty programs? Why are companies still ploughing into that and still uh, pouring money into them and, and investing in them? It's probably two sides of a coin that just keeps flipping. So I think customer expectations are changing and and increasingly they expect to be rewarded for their customer, if not, if not their loyalty. And then at the same time, obviously, customer expectations are influenced by what the market's doing. And and every man and his dog is launching a loyalty program. And, you know, that, that may not be the most thoughtful way to go about what we've talked about in terms of actually engendering loyalty and or driving the best customer outcomes. But ultimately, those two things work together and, and, and sort of incentivize or or motivate in a way other businesses to to jump on the wagon. I think Australians ultimately, there is a real uh, customer expectation around, around value and around loyalty and around rewards. And that doesn't always necessitate points, but it, it does it does mean that brands need to offer customers something more than just their purchase. Bernard, let's go to some of your lessons in loyalty programs because you're involved in the team that launched Woolworth's first program, 2016, I think, the Everyday Rewards program, I think. You quickly realised that you hadn't quite landed it in the first iteration and you went to version 2.0 about a year later. Just talk us through what happened there in the first instance and and what you learnt and and what happened uh, in, in, in the second the second attempt. Yeah, it's it's a bit of a dubious honour, Paul, to to have on your CV that you you know you relaunch the same program twice. Yes, there are a couple of learnings. First of all, I still believe that the strategy for I guess Woolworths Rewards 1.0 it, it was great, but I, I learned through that that strategy isn't everything. It was a really important life lesson for me coming from I guess the the legal and investment banking background. Um, you can have the best idea in the world, but the idea itself is an important execution on it is, and you need to set yourself and the business up for success to execute. So at the time we were trying to launch a, a pretty novel proposition, but the business had so much on its plate with other initiatives or all high priority, it just couldn't successfully execute against the CVP. And, and that 
ultimately turned customers off. When you say it turned customers off, though, Bernard, what, what do you mean by that? What happened? They didn't buy into the program. Yeah, I mean, we, we went from a situation where um, customers were earning frequent fly points and, and we recognised that the vast majority of customers actually weren't earning or engaging with that mechanic. And so we switched to a mechanic where they would earn on on their everyday purchase, product purchases. Um, but we probably didn't have... Um, first of all, enough of a sense as to the fact that we were taking something away without um, being able to give all customers what they wanted back. And what I mean by that is we weren't as a business able to actually ensure that all customers were were earning um, a sufficient amount of of value across their everyday products. Um, And and so we got the customer feedback that, that many customers had gone from actually getting something in, in return for their custom to, to, to not receiving anything. Um, which I think, you know, ultimately that was the, on the positive side, we, we learned to listen to our customers in real time. We, we took that feedback, you know, it came through across all channels. It, it came in emails to Brad. As a business, I think we, we probably learned the value in responding at, at light speed where required to, to meet an expectation or to solve uh, to solve a problem and and to relaunch a program at that scale within nine months like, like it's it's no mean feat and I, and I I think it talks to both the customer centricity and and the agility that that Brad brought to the business that's you're talking about the CEO of the Woolworths group there yeah very quickly what did 2.0 look like that was different to the first attempt the new program or the 2.0 program it's now actually been rebranded to everyday rewards again which is a great back to the future moment but it really went back to the simplest, truest, most unashamedly, I think, customer-led proposition. So it was as simple and easy as you earn on on your shopping and, and you don't need to change your behaviour. You just earn on whatever you were going to buy. And then the, the reward for doing so is cash back on your groceries. It's intentionally stayed true to that, I guess, rather than going down the, the more coalition path of, of onboarding a bunch of different partners and and offering members the ability to earn and redeem with those partners. It- so, so you were suggesting that the, the the programs like what Qantas does and other airlines and and some of those other uh, bundled offers, whether you've got alliance partners, they are not the future. It's not to say that they're not the future. I think any business in Australia with with that type of scale from a customer perspective, it has an enormous opportunity. I think those types of businesses just they need to to make a thoughtful decision as to whether they're best operating, I guess, a traditional standalone loyalty business that 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 has its its own economics um, that contribute to to the business, or whether they are are better um, better off prioritising at at cost of that traditional model, their their customer experiences. So it does get us to this this point, uh, Bernard, around uh, alliance partners and so forth. Loyalty programs can, if they're right, to, to your point, if they if they if they're uh, developed correctly and executed correctly, they can work for retailers. They can even work for airlines. But do they work for alliance partners? And do they work for say brands and suppliers and some of those in, in in those supply chains? Can they work there? I think the biggest opportunity is to really face into the fact that the person who exists at the centre of, of that ecosystem is ultimately the customer. And all of those parties will benefit if they do the right thing by and ultimately meet customer expectations. And that sounds a bit pithy, but but I honestly believe it's as simple as that. So 
if you think about, I guess, my learnings over the past 10 years, it, it's kind of as simple as personalization isn't just a buzzword. It, it, it works and it works because customers expect it. At Woolworths, for example, we talked about using customer data as a precious gift to enhance customer experiences. And that was, it was central to everything we did. And, and now as a customer versus a staff member, I, I can see it remains. I, I'm, I'm surprised and delighted by how personalized my experience is. I'm not bombarded. I don't receive spam. If you think about the other side of that equation, Woolworths is obviously managing uh, its relationships with a bunch of brands that, that want to talk to me. And, and a bunch of partners that also want to talk to me. It's just doing it in a more customer-centric way. And, and I think if with the emerging sort of trends and opportunities in data and technology, there exists the opportunity to do that, to really drive what I refer to, I guess, as a, as a three-way win for, for the, the program at the center and the business that, that ultimately the program should support, the customer, and then all of the partners that, that want to leverage that connection between business or program and customer. Well, it's, it's no secret that there is some frustration, say, in a retail context with um, how retailers uh, control the customer, own the customer data, and the, uh, the partners, the suppliers, the brands, the products that are feeding into that supply chain, uh, sometimes in the dark uh, and often um, sort of coerced, if you like, to contribute to a, a retail program that's um, about funding it, really. So, you know, I just want to come back to this thing about what, where does it leave brands and suppliers in, in, in these loyalty programs where where they don't get necessarily get the visibility, they don't get the data, uh, but they're asked to, to, to fork out some bucks. I think it comes back to how CMOs and how those brands really focus on driving their business in, in the new age. And I think that means that loyalty programs are, are one of many opportunities and all, I guess, levers that they can pull to drive their best, best business objectives. And so if you think about all the places where you can invest your money, loyalty programs is, is one place and, and there are a bunch of, of other places. And, and I think the business, um, on the business side, the, the CMOs need to think about all of the opportunities to reach customers across all of those different supplier or, or partner bases and, and, and take more control and accountability and pull those levers more thoughtfully on a I guess a more aggregate basis to drive more value across the whole versus perhaps historically where they were more dependent upon loyalty as a priority channel. I think you also argue there's new thinking uh, that's required from brands, marketers and retailers around the path to purchase and the marketing funnel. Um, brand Balancing brand investment uh, versus driving action and purchase. Um, there's a role here, I think you, you, you argue, uh, for loyalty, but different, different mindset required, different approach to this required. I, I think so, Paul. I think it might sound strange coming from you know, first of all, an ex-investment banker and, and then, a, I guess, a more data-driven and performance-based marketer. But I don't, for a second, underestimate the importance of investment in brand. I think businesses that forgo investment in brand and awareness, they do so at their peril. I think having said that, I'm, I'm conscious that CMOs are under increasing pressure for, pressure for, for ROI and to be able to demonstrate ROI. And and a lot of retailers that, that are facing into to headwinds, their CFOs are, are, are looking at their marketing budgets quite closely. And it, it's really hard to show ROI on, on brand investment because it's embedded in the baseline. And I think 
with without sort of focusing solely on our business, that thematic's actually one of the reasons I was really excited about the cash rewards business because us and others, we sort of offer marketers the best of both worlds in a sense, regardless of whether the CMO is using us to drive brand awareness or conversion, they only really pay when performance is achieved. And and through this combination, we can talk to the, the, the mouth-watering returns for brand partners. So we, we see generally like greater than 10 times return on ad spend, which can be double to triple that of other performance marketing channels that are more focused on conversion alone because that results driven by a combination of greater awareness all the way down to increased frequency in AOV. So, Well, I guess you, you've got me into a corner there, Bernard. I'm, gonna have to, I'm going to have to let you have a, a, a spiel on, <laughs> on what cash rewards is. Well done. Um, but when you say that um, you, you, you know, cash rewards has got that balance in, in performance and brand from advertising and a 10 times return, I think you said, um, what is it? We better, you better tell us what cash rewards does. Yeah, Paul. So at its heart, Cash Rewards connects merchants and, and customers to facilitate that three-way win. So in a world where I think brand awareness and activation are all intertwined, we we enable brands to, uh, to activate against those strategic objectives ultimately by, uh, by giving customers additional value in the form of a cashback for engaging with them. Give us an example. How does it, how does it with, with a brand or a category? Good example would be we work with strategically with a bunch of brands, but take Apple, for example. Uh, we would facilitate an offer that, that, that we, both between Apple and ourselves, believe is compelling for a customer, and, and we would then promote that to customers through our channels. And so we, we, we see um, partners like Apple where we recently ran a 7% off Apple offer, which is... Um, pretty rare in the market. We we work with Booking.com and 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 it's sort of an additional twelve percent. And ultimately, whether it's seven or twelve, irrespective of brand partner, um, the customer transacts. And in addition to any other offers that that retailer or brand are offering, they get that amount of their of their purchase value into their cash rewards cash account, uh, and they can withdraw it. Um, you know, at any point in the future to to throw into their bank account to, you know, increase savings or, or to treat themselves. So how many customers, uh, what's the makeup of your customer base? And when you talk about your channels, uh, what are they? There's a lot of questions there. There are a lot of questions. Love them, though. We've got uh, more than 800,000 engaged customers and it's growing pretty quickly. That that number's increased 40% year on year. Um from a channel perspective, and I think this is what really excites me about the opportunity, in many ways, we're already our customer's shopping partner and we're able to facilitate merchants connecting with customers in that context. So we're there at the moment of consideration through our app, both both iOS and Android, obviously. We're in the search moment through our notifier on, on web browsers. And we're also there at the payment moment where we're agnostic as to, to payment type. And and so we offer brands the ability to connect with customers through that end-to-end journey. And and from our perspective, we're, we're there the entire way. So we're collecting data that enables us to think about how we increase our relevance at each stage of, of the journey, which ultimately drives more value for the businesses that we work with and, and more value for, for our business. 
When you talk about value, though, that your customer base, uh, are they typically a, a, a very high-value-driven, discount-driven um, segment? Uh, and what is, that, what is the makeup of the, of the sorts of um, people and, and customers that are s- sitting on your platform? Yeah, at the moment, I think the, the customer base is more of that uh, traditional uh, discount-focused, bargain-centric customer. Um, I don't think that will stay the same forever, though. So if we look at international examples, the penetration of the cashback, uh, the cashback offer or, or uh, vertical, it has 20 25% penetration of the entire population. In Australia, the, the cashback vertical sits at about 3 or 4% penetration. And so over time, with increased awareness in a market where there just hasn't been a great investment in awareness historically, I think the the mechanic starts to become more mainstream because why wouldn't you as a shopper take advantage of, of additional savings from, from brands that you love? Bernard, it's always been the argument too that there's a lot of upside in Australia for coupons because coupons in the US are massive, but that's never it's never landed here either. I think that's right. It's one where you can reflect on the history of, of, of programs, loyalty programs generally and programs like ours. Um, when we were working at, at Woolworths, we spent a lot of time talking to retailers in the UK and, and understanding that Australia was different because uh, we, we really came to the party later. And so in the UK where um, the loyalty program was actually built around coupons because it was started in a world where emails didn't really exist and or marketing technology wasn't, wasn't scaled to the point where um, it has recently. Um, Australia started in a world that their programs, Everyday Rewards, for example, it, it started in a world where the primary channel was email. And so I think the, the difference in, in um, between the different geographies in terms of the uptake of coupons is, is largely due to the customer um, expectation and, and the different customer dynamics of each of those markets. So in Australia, and you can see it as a customer, there are less coupons there, but there is at the same time, there's, there's far less prevalence of direct mail, for example. Uh, in Australia, we are, um, we are a nation that, that is much more, uh, much more familiar with communicating or receiving communications from brands via email or SMS and apps. So we, we are slightly more digital in that respect. You talk about uh, customer base at the moment of about 800,000. What uh, are you forecasting? What's possible? I know that you, you know, you've you got uh, investment bankers all over you and IPOs uh, in consideration, but um, what is the projections here? What are, what are you talking about in terms of your, your base uh, in a year's time and in two years' time? So I can't really talk about exact numbers at this point, Paul, just because we're, as you say, in the midst of a prospectus process and or an IPO process, and that that puts a, uh, a bit of a filter on me. I think the reason that we're undertaking the IPO is to to raise money to give us the opportunity to to drive awareness in we, in a market where we think there's massive underpenetration, and and I think. We've seen through through COVID the step change in e-commerce and and the way that that um, supports businesses like ours that um, that skew um, in that direction and and can really help both brands and customers to make more of that more of that um, that transition. So I, I think we've got huge ambitions uh, and you know from a 
from a penetration at a market perspective of today of around four, looking at the US and the UK, I, I think there's no reason to not think that the total addressable market for a business like ours is is every Australian shopper and and um, going through the process we are at the moment to raise funds, it, it, it's really to, to enliven that opportunity. So if I was to say, in my words, Bernard, that it, it could double in the next 12 to 18 months, would you say I'm crazy? I think it, it will come down to how well as a business um, we ruthlessly prioritise across what we do and, and how we leverage the funds that we receive to, to, to drive that growth in, in, in customers um, and, more importantly, in engaged customers. That's almost a fantastic tap dance, and you, do, you, you should be the Prime Minister. There's a very good answer with saying, <laughs> by saying nothing, Bernard Wilson. Thank you. But when you do say about dri- driving awareness, um, how are you going to do that? This is the interesting thing, because we just talked about lower funnel performance. Are you going to use performance to drive awareness, or are you going to use brand and main street? How, how do you do it? It's such a great question, and it's one where I think I'm going to, as the leader of this business, have to put my money where my mouth is, in a way, around what I believe, around how brands should operate and you know hopefully i'll be proven to have made the right decisions i think we're absolutely going to have to to flex between traditional uh, brand marketing and leverage performance based um, or more traditional performance based channels from an awareness perspective if, if we go back to my belief that you need to be where your customers are and my belief in the importance of of driving brand uh, and even back to the Ehrenberg Bass discussion around salience and penetration, we are going to need to be in a way that we haven't ever before in the customer's face to explain the value of the proposition. And and so that is going to require um, investment in more traditional channels because whilst scaled programs like Worst Rewards or Qantas Frequent Flyers, they can manage sort of, I guess, performance and targeting at scale if you're not that that type of business, you, you you absolutely need to use traditional channels in the most thoughtful way possible to 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 get customers to uh, understand you as a brand, understand your your proposition, and and really take it for a for a for a test drive, so to speak, and hopefully become. What, what's the timing on that? When do we start to see a more visible, noisy, active uh, cash rewards in the market? Uh, fingers crossed it's by the time your listeners are listening to this podcast, Paul. Well, do explain. We have, and we're sort of, I guess, um, probably giving the investment bankers more more time than, than we should on <laughs> what's a, you know, what I'd like to think is more of a marketing podcast. But we, we successfully closed a pre-IPO round last week, which gives us some runway into the IPO. And, and certainly we're looking to use... Uh, some of those proceeds to to take what has effectively been a bootstrapped company and to bring it more to the forefront of of the average Australian customer's attention. Well, game on. So, do you have your you have your marketing partners uh, and your strategy, your execution, your your media and channel planning? Does that all sort, or does that get to come? We're doing it a bit in real time, Paul, and I think um, that's probably not best practice. And your listeners will probably flinch a bit at that, but. Because the company has historically been bootstrapped, it, it has sort of been running by the smell of an oily rag. So, you know, to achieve the objectives and ambitions that we have, we're, we're probably going to be refueling the plane whilst it's in the air a bit. Aren't we all? Aren't we all, by the way? I think so. But And, and I think your audience would, would probably, um, you know, they, they would probably feel the same. The, the beauty of marketing in this day and age is 
is you can try and test and learn and you can do it in, I mean, real time sounds pithy, but you can, you can do it in, in, in a pretty close to real time way, which means you can be really um, agile with the way that you're managing that investment and, and really track to make sure that you're driving the objectives that you want. So I, I mean, I don't think that that for a second, that that stands in the place of a good strategy, but I think it, it does allow businesses to, to start to get on and find quick wins. I think it's actually, a, it's probably a point that's interesting in the traditional retail marketing context, because businesses like that, they have limited investment and they need to drive some pretty fantastic targets with, with significant headwinds. But the beauty of marketing today is, is, is that you can try things and, and test and learn and then pick what works. And, and so I think if you assemble the right team and do it cleverly, you can actually, uh, you can probably get more for less in a way if you're really thoughtful about the way you do it. So I've got two more questions for you um, and we'll wrap. The final one will be around what should brands and marketers be really thinking about if your optimistic uh, outlook comes true about the, the rise in, in, in cash rewards and, and cash backs as a, as, a, as a program. But before we get to that, the regulatory environment. So, you know, it's heating up. We, we see the ACCC moving on all sorts of things around data, first party, second, third, fourth, in, in disclosure and consent and data trading. Um, is this a risk at all for, for cash rewards? Because you are, requiring um, to for you've got a customer base and you're sharing that with with alliance partners if you like is there a risk there I don't think it's a risk I think I think first of all the the regulation is good I, I think that that businesses do need to be challenged more to ensure that they're seeking the right consent and and to ensure that they're using the data in a way that the customers expect and ultimately that that they're giving relative value back it's you know it is a quid pro quo you need to be giving customers value in exchange for the data that they give you i think it's an opportunity for us versus a threat i mean the reality is we've got a growing and highly engaged cohort of members who who have specifically opted in in a way to allow us to connect them to brands they love and show them offers they might be interested in and and in exchange for that we give them something of value we give them a significant cashback benefit over time. So we know our average engaged customers, a large cohort, they they receive more than $300 a year. And I mean, we talked about some of those deals we run earlier. A customer can frequently earn more than $500 in a single shop. So back to that quid pro quo, I think we, we are well-placed because we, we are, um, we provide the opportunity to, to support um, our brand partners to, uh, to, to connect with their customers and, and meet their business objectives where other alternatives may be falling away. So, Bernard, the final question, what would you say to, to brand owners and marketers uh, in and around this, this sector and category, both in terms of the upbeat uh, outlook you have, uh, COVID's changing things, you, you mentioned that, you touched on that, uh, but what should uh, brands and marketers really uh, be thinking about and how they, they play in this area? COVID's really interesting, and I might start with that. Some of the projections of the death of physical retail are, are hugely overblown. Uh, the data that we're seeing suggests that we're experiencing a, a structural shift to online. I think marketers need to really reflect on that. One of the tenets of Byron Sharp is, as I understand it, not to interrupt buying patterns. But if we think about where we are at the moment, it's the first time in living memory where a huge part of the population has had their buying pattern completely disrupted 
this means that marketers, that they need to reflect that change in their strategies. They, they, they need to um, be more thoughtful around how they're executing in a, in a fastly changing market with fastly changing customer expectations. And uh, from a cash rewards perspective, I think we're, we're lucky that, that our brand partners are coming to us to help them achieve those goals, whether they be acquiring or reactivating or driving loyalty. I think the other point probably more broadly is it goes back to that three-way win. I think brands need to find um, or to add, you know, to their quiver the the opportunity to to drive better business outcomes that, that are reliant on better customer outcomes. And so I think working with businesses like ours that exist at a unique point of, of the retail funnel where we can both keep customers informed and aware of brand and ultimately to help them um, help be alerted as to rewards that they wouldn't otherwise be aware of, that that can translate to really meaningful value, um, not just to the customer, but to the brand that's curating that relationship. Um, so, I, and I think over time that, that, that allows, um, ultimately that allows our business to, whilst cashback is the core proposition, fundamentally we're, we're a trusted shopping partner to the member and, and we help them save and we make it easy and, and, and we reward them for coming on the journey with us. And I think that's, that's the future of loyalty and, and loyalty marketing. It's, it's a future of companies, brands and, and customers that, that all benefit together. Oh, I think it's going to prove a fascinating case study either way, Bernard. And, and you know, I, I think about some other digital uh, or online pure plays, certainly in retail, uh, companies like adorebeauty.com.au, who uh, we covered a little bit in, in MI3, where they launched a historically a, a performance lower funnel marketer. Uh, they launched a brand campaign through COVID and, and as much as they felt that or they expected that the, the effects of that brand building effort would, would take some time, they saw a very quick impact uh, on into the acquisition, customer acquisition and purchases. It, it worked straight away. They were, they were pleasantly surprised. So with you and what you're doing with your, you know, your awareness building campaign and building that out into a broader consumer understanding of what's going on, it'll be, it'll be very interesting to t- uh, loop around in a, in, a, in a few months or six months and see whether that has actually worked for Cash Rewards. Thanks for joining Bernard Wilson. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate the time and good luck to all of your listeners. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's moi in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.